Welcome to Cornerstone Bible Church Sunday School. We're picking up where we left off in Colossians, so go ahead and please start turning there. Our text today is Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. If you're paying attention to those numbers I just said, you're probably freaking out right now. You know Doug has a hard time getting through three verses, and now he's got eight. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. I am excited about this, though, because I think the, uh, the topics in this text are really excellent. I've always wanted to, to teach on them, so uh, you're, you're in for it. Sorry. All right. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement in the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God." If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Let's pray. Dear Father, as we get into this text today, we ask that you would bless us. We ask that your spirit would guide us. Help us to see what is here and not what is not. And please give us a heart receptive to it, a mind receptive to it, and transform us by it so that we may enjoy you so that we may have peace and hope and rest and joy in you and Jesus Christ, your Son. And we thank you for Jesus, and we pray this all in his name. Amen. Now, this section of Scripture is entitled by John MacArthur as Spiritual Intimidation, which I think is a really good, a really good uh, name for it. In fact, I was trying to come up with titles that I would use, and they were a lot longer, not nearly as pithy. Um, but one that I did come up with, I think, is really important, too, because this is also about religious asceticism. Asceticism just being kind of an unfamiliar word for uh, denying oneself life's enjoyments for the sake of religion, right? And that's, uh, that's, I think, what we really need to see, too, is it's not just spiritual intimidation, which maybe we do to each other, but a spiritual intimidation, which we do to ourselves. That's religious asceticism, isn't it? And so, um, asceticism in religion, it's got to be a part of this as well. So we'll look at, first of all, spiritual intimidation, and we'll also look at uh, religious, religious asceticism. Can't talk. Um, and it's, it's, the hard part is that asceticism really promises a lot to us, doesn't it? It promises much, but it only gives frustration in the end. It seems to promise forgiveness and continued favor from whichever gods we seek to appease. And it's a natural route by which religious man, homo religiosus, because that's what we could be called, right? We're all religious, attempts to make things right. If you look at any religion outside of true Christianity, if you look at any religion, what are they trying to do? They're trying, what does man attempt to do? to utter enough prayers, right? To give enough alms. To honor the gods in the right way. To say the right things. To do the right things at the right time. To make the right sacrifices. And some of those sacrifices may not be the bloody ones of shedding the blood of an ox or a sheep or a goat, but to deny oneself life's enjoyments. And even more so, for the busybodies, to deny others life's enjoyments for the sake of religious asceticism. But we know as Christians 
And we're going to know it a whole lot better as Bill gets into Hebrews, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats and, uh, to take away sins, right? How much more the ascetic act of denying oneself meat on Fridays. We're saying a prayer over and over again as an act of penance. Or if we are really truthful about the way that we look at things, maybe a concern like something like wine, which we are told for, that comes from God in order to make men's hearts glad, Psalm 104.15, and which can be drunk in his presence as a gift and a blessing from him, Deuteronomy 14.26. And lest we forget, Christ himself even transformed water into it. However, we also know that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit and a virtue given to Christians by God. And so often when we deny ourselves, what we're doing is exercising self-control. After all, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Proverbs 25, 28. Or what we get concerned about, too, is how we are perceived by the outside world as we try to share the gospel with them, right? And so we think like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So we might end up looking at those verses, looking at that logic and asking ourselves, where is the balance found in these things? Because we often think that balance between two Seemingly competing ideas like this is where biblical instruction, therefore, must be. But in actuality, the things which we understand as legalism or license have much more in common with each other than they do the biblical truth and instruction and application that we actually see in Scripture. They both fail in the same way, which is something that we'll get to in a moment, and I'll leave it there on a little cliffhanger. But they both fail in the same way. You see, the, Paul, the items that Paul mentions in our text today are things like food and drink and festivals and days, things that can be handled and tasted and touched. Do we limit ourselves unnecessarily by eating unspiced, unsalted food merely to keep ourselves alive? Because we could do that, right? Get some nutrition brick out that has all of your vitamins and minerals and carbs and proteins and everything that you need to live, and you could just chow down on that as an act of religious asceticism, couldn't you? Fearing gluttony as a result of eating something really good. So do we do that? Do we drink only water? Do we celebrate the birth of Christ on Christmas? or his resurrection on Easter, or do we not celebrate thinking there is some conspiracy regarding making Christian that which is pagan? (laughs) Do we completely abstain from these things, finding in that abstinence a source of holiness? Or do we find the point at which the enjoyment of something is intended by God and remain there within those confines, enjoying those things to his glory? I mean, obviously, I believe that the answer is the latter. Think of the easily understood or misunderstood. (laughs) Actually, it's understood for us who are Christians. Example of sex and marriage. It's something we've been wrestling with within the American church a whole bunch over the last several decades, right? And really, it's been wrestled over for millennia. So nothing new there. But we understand it pretty well because we've had to talk about it in order to address the problem in the, in the culture. And so, but it shows us, too, how limitations biblically can be arrived at. It's simple. Sex is created by God. That means it is good within its intended confines. In fact, we might even say that sex is commanded for us, at least to mankind in general, since we've been told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And God did not intend for that to be a test tube type of procreation, right? But rather through sexual intercourse, as Genesis goes on to say, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So right in the very beginning of the Bible, we get a clear set of guidelines for the enjoyment of an act that God intended for enjoyment. 
And we also see the principle that the created order is within the law of God just as much as is sex. Or, excuse me, I've jumped a line. Created order is within the law of God, and any straying outside of that created order is therefore sin. Marriage is created by God just as much as is sex. It is not a human institution, but a God-made and God-sealed covenant within the boundaries of which intercourse between a single man and a single woman is kept pure, undefiled, joyous, and God-glorifying. We understand that, right? But acknowledging that covenant and the acts that are to remain within it turns man's attention, I'm going to do this a lot today, turns man's attention to the centrality of Christ in all things that God has naturally confined. Christ himself, after all, is the bridegroom of the church. That's how he's described, right? To the point where in becoming one with him, those who are in the church, you know, the bride of Christ, are said to have died with him and to have been buried with him and one day to be raised with him, imperishable. How awesome is that? And that's what we see in our text today. That's what we see all through Colossians because as we've been going through the first two chapters of Colossians, what has Paul been doing? Continually snapping the attention of the Colossians back to Christ. Whatever the topic, it's always going back to Christ. Let's look real quick. Let's go back. We won't go all the way to the uh, beginning of Colossians, but look at the top of chapter 1. And follow me here. You don't just read along, skim it while I'm kind of summarizing here. In verse 2, Paul says he wants the Colossians' faith and assurance of faith to be full and true. And then in verses 2 and 3, he says, Paul recalls the Christological teaching of chapter 1 as he says that this truth is in Christ, who is the treasure trove of wisdom and knowledge. In verse 4, Paul is concerned that the Colossians might be persuaded of a twisting of Christ's order in regard to truth. In verses 5 through 7, Paul tells the Colossians to remember the Christ in whom they had put their faith. That Christ is where their roots and foundation are, and from whom their growth has occurred. In verse 8, Paul warns that deviation from this true Christ, whom they have learned, is to succumb to man-made philosophy, to empty deception, to traditions of men, and elementary principles of the world. In verses 9 and 10, Paul reminds the Colossians once again of the deity and power and rule and authority of who? Jesus Christ, right? In verses 11 and 12, Paul states that the Colossians, and by extension all Christians, right? That's us in this room, have become united with who? Christ, through a circumcision made without hands and signified by baptism. In verses 13 and 14, Paul states that the consequence of this union and cleansing is to be dead to the old life, forgiven of all of our transgressions, having our debt canceled and nailed to the cross. And then in verse 15, Paul states that this act of Christ on the cross, Christ on the cross, and the cleansing received through union with him also disarms and triumphs over the powers of darkness. And that's what we have to get through our heads as we start our exposition of the text today, that before we begin spiritually intimidating others with false laws of piety or engaging in acts of deprivation in order to prove our commitment, to pay for our sins, or to display our piousness, we must understand the lay of the land in regard to Christ and our relationship with Him. Or to put it another way, before we start looking for some balance between legalism and license, we seek instead to understand in faith how Christ has paid the price for our sin and those of our brothers and sisters long before they were ever committed. See, it's a continual readjustment of our focus from the act to the Christ whom we're actually serving in the act. Right? So let's pick up there with our our passage today. Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, 
things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In these first two verses of our text, we see that that kicking off word that we often see in Paul's letters, right? Therefore. What is the therefore? Therefore, well, it's a reference back to the previous sentence in verses 14 and 15. Obviously, right? Because Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities, because Christ made a public display of them, because Christ triumphed over them, no one is to act as your judge. Christ, again, Christ canceled out the debt of decrees against us, nailing it to the cross, and all of the rulers and authorities who would use those things to throw the book at us, or to condemn us, or to call us sinners and reprobates, have now been triumphed over. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge. Who? No one. How is no one to act as your judge? Well, in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Why can they not act as a judge in those specific matters? Well, because those are things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ, right? But now we're straying into something a little less clear from simple reading when we talk about uh, excuse me, shadow and substance, right? What does it mean that these things are shadows while the substance belongs to Christ? It means that the food and the drink rules that used to separate Israel from the pagan nations around them have been made perfect in Christ, who, after all, is the bread that came down out of heaven, John 6, 41. It means that the Jewish festivals and Sabbaths, which were celebrated by command, are now made perfect in Christ, who is our Passover, who has been sacrificed, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And we'll see a whole bunch more of this when we get into Hebrews, won't we? Christ is better at everything. <laughs> He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better as a sacrifice. He's better as a temple. He's better in every way. And in him is the fullness, the substance that we only see in shadow by the regulations. The food and drink and festival and Sabbath regulations, just like the entirety of the law, have been perfectly kept by Christ. And those who judge us based on, get this, those who judge us based on how they perceive of how well we keep those regulations are missing the crucial point of how Christ has canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and nailed it to the cross. How Christ has given us victory over the regulations of the law. And by the way, I'm going to be talking a lot about the law today, not because that's everything, but rather because if the law, which is good and righteous and true, ends up drawing a line out here at these points, obviously to transgress that is to sin against God, right? So what do we do in response? We draw our lines inside of that, don't we? And obviously, if the law has been kept by Christ, and that's important enough for Paul to write about over and over and over again, then wouldn't it also mean that these little regulations that we keep for ourselves and make for ourselves out of spiritual asceticism, spiritual piousness, piety, wouldn't those also be covered by what Paul says? So I'll be talking about the law, but think about your own the own, your own uh, limitations that you place for yourself in understanding that the substance belongs to Christ, right? These are mere shadows. Here's the thing. Christ himself, you know, the one who established the law to begin with, that Christ, who established it in righteousness and power, He himself got grief from those who are around him for the ways in which he lived within the law. We knew he wasn't going to transgress the law, right? He wasn't going to do that. He is perfect. He is holy. He is God. He's not going to break those things. And yet what did the Pharisees and all of the other believers who didn't want to believe in him, I shouldn't say believers, all those in Israel who didn't believe in him, what did they say? 
You remember when Jesus said, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous and a drunkard. Matthew eleven nineteen, They called our Lord a glutton and a drunkard. Why? Because he didn't conform to the rules they had set up. By their own perception, by the way, he was keeping it better than any of them. And remember when Jesus got grief from the Pharisees for his disciples not fasting and quote-unquote keeping the Sabbath. He said in Matthew 12, verses 5 through 8, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple even break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So once again, we see that myopic focus. We often call it navel-gazing, right? Looking down, trying to make sure that you're right. That myopic focus on the regulations or on the ought-to-dos we set up for ourselves is missing the point of why you maybe might do them. They only count if Christ is the focus. The disciples did not fast while Christ was with them, right? Because he is the bridegroom, and that's not what the guests of the bridegroom do. While he is there, they feast. Turn over real quick to Mark chapter 2. just want to look at a couple of verses here, but... uh, Mark chapter 2. But I do want you to notice something here, especially since we mentioned Christ as bridegroom before. We'll be in verse 18. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Okay, so that's John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now notice in this passage that Christ says that while he is with them, they do not fast. But one day they might fast after he is taken from them. And isn't that the time period in which we find ourselves now, right? Yet since Christ's Spirit is present in us, do we also not cry out through Him, Abba, Father, a cry of victory and joy at being adopted sons of God? And we know that He is present in us. The Spirit of Christ is present in us by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that wonderful? So we learn from this that we can fast or we can feast if our focus is where? On Christ, right? That's what we find here. Turn back over to Colossians chapter 2, because that takes us careful, or well into, uh, back into our passage here today. I keep on bringing up that the focus is wrong. When we focus on the regulations, when we focus on intimidating one another with the perceptions that we have of how well each other are keeping the law and the regulations. When we spiritually intimidate ourselves through asceticism and through uh, keeping some regulation that we've set up for ourselves without focusing on Christ, we're failing. And we see that, we'll see that especially in verse 23 because those things have no value for, against fleshly indulgence. That's what Paul says, not Doug. These things have no value. We'll get to that in a second. But picking up in verse 18... Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. So once again, we have the words no one in our text. No one is to do what? No one is to keep defrauding you of what? No one is to keep defrauding you of your prize. Now, that's very similar to what Paul said in verse 16, isn't it? He said there that no one is to act as your judge. And now he says, 
No one is to keep defrauding you of your prize. So he's stating the same thing in two different ways. In verse 16, it's the spiritual intimidation, which I mentioned at the beginning. But here in verse 18, it's more like spiritual theft. Someone is defrauding another. Someone is taking what is not his to take. This is theft. This is theft of a prize, as Paul puts it. That's a neat word, prize. Paul calls the upward call of God a prize in Philippians 3.14. And perhaps that's what's in mind here, the upward call of God. But it seems to spiritualize the passage a bit too much, though, because the focus here is on food and on drink and on festivals and new moons and Sabbaths, things very physical, which even perish with use, as Paul says in verse 22. But there's a link between these two uses of the word prize, though, the one in Philippians 3.14 and the, the one here in Colossians. What is that link? Uh, in Philippians 3.14, I, I purposefully left out a little clause there. The prize is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Ha <laughs> Yeah. The focus is on Christ there too. In Philippians, Paul is talking in that context about absorbing and fighting through the suffering that we end up perceiving in this world, right? Here in Colossians, Paul is talking about enjoying and taking hold of and feasting through the good things, with the good things. The prize, though, in each case, whether in sorrow or in feasting, the prize is Jesus. And so that should help us understand verses 18 and 19 better, and really the entire text here in Colossians 2. The focus is on food and drink and festivals and new moons and Sabbaths here, things very physical, and in that we're thinking things very spiritual. But since we're, we are a whole body and soul, not two parts, not one part that can exist without the other, since we're a whole body and soul, it makes sense that the prize for both body and soul would be Christ Jesus, right? And this is why the rest of the sentence makes sense in verse 18. To be defrauded of your prize is to delight in self-abasement, to worship angels, to follow after dreams and visions, to be inflated by a fleshly mind, and to not hold fast to the head, which is Christ. And to not hold fast to the head is to lose the supply of nutrients and goodness, which we need to be cut loose from the rest of the body, to miss out on the growth which is ours. All of these things are distractions from the true focus. Self-abasement says that Christ isn't enough, and I need to deny myself things in order to pay my debt. Worshiping angels denies that Christ's work is final, and we need messages of self-abasement from further messengers. Following visions is to deny the sufficiency of Scripture and, and substitute our own internal desires. You know, the same Scripture that attests to Christ being enough. To be inflated by a fleshly mind is to harbor a false sense of maturity. So it's this line of thinking that kind of makes us wonder. So is, the, is Paul saying here, that not partaking of food or drink or keeping a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath regulation, is that an indication of a lack of spiritual growth? I think that's a question we need to probably look into a little bit, huh? That's a good question. Does that indicate if we don't eat or drink or if we do keep a festival that is, is regulated and yet we're in Christ, does that mean that we lack a spiritual maturity? And you guys might be thinking immediately of Romans 14, and we're going to go there in a second, since we've been uh, talking about that on Sunday nights. Because we see in our pa passage, those who are judged and defrauded of their prize end up delighting in their self-abasement and lose the supply of nutrients and growth that should result from their relationship with Christ. So does the one who does not partake of these things do so from a lack of spiritual maturity? And do they even double down on that spiritual maturity by cutting themselves off? from the head, which is Christ. We've already established that sometimes 
not partaking of something is a measure of self-control, right? Got some nods? All right. So I think the immediate answer to our question is that no, not partaking of a certain food or drink or or keeping a festival is not necessarily an indication of a lack of maturity. Yet we see the same thing when we kind of look at, at Romans 14. So turn over to Romans 14 real quick. Because I do want to look at this from that context. And you'll see that that, that uh, indication that it is a lack of spiritual maturity is there. But that's not the point. That's not the main point. Okay? So let's look at this real quick. Um, really, the entire chapter of Romans 14 is excellent for this topic, so I encourage you to read it maybe this afternoon or something like that. But we're only going to look at the first uh, nine verses. Romans 14, verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith. Okay, so there we go. He's talking about the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. We'll get into that a little bit more in just a second. Then we get verse 2. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. There's like one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. (laughs) It says it. It's clear. It's in black and white. Sorry, vegetarians and vegans. No. The one who is weak eats vegetables only. Verse 3. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. Why? For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand. Why? For the Lord is able to make him stand. Oh, that's key. Verse 5, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die... We die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So note that the one who is weak in the faith eats vegetables only. Yes, I do keep on repeating that. Sorry. That states outright that the one who does not partake is the weaker of the two, right? But once again, like I said at the beginning, that's not the main point here. Paul gives some more insight into withholding oneself from those sorts of things when he says that Peter, by the way, you remember back in Galatians, when we were in Galatians, what, a couple of years ago? (laughs) Hasn't been a couple of years. Wow. What did Peter do? He held himself aloof from the Gentiles and did not eat with them out of fear and weakness. So that is the implication of the text. To not eat is to display a lack of conviction about the purity of eating or drinking or celebrating a feast or a Sabbath. Yet, after that short statement in Romans 2, the focus changes. It even stated up front in verse 1, but it changes from there. And it's not about who is the weaker brother based on whether a thing is done or not done. Rather, the problem is in the heart of judgment upon a brother who does the opposite of your conviction. The one who eats should not judge the one who does not eat and vice versa. The one who regards one day above another is not to judge the one who does not regard one day above another and vice versa. Instead, the concern is the person, whether the carnivore or the vegetarian, and his relationship with the Lord. In other words, the focus is placed back upon the one who has set us free from the law of sin and death 
If we eat, we eat for the Lord. If we do not eat, we refrain for the Lord. If we celebrate, we celebrate for the Lord. If we mourn, we mourn in the Lord. Romans 14, verses 7 and 8, once again. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, we live, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. So the question becomes one of conviction and conscience for the individual within the context of his relationship with Christ. And you know, if we really think about our theology really carefully, we know this. We're all at different points in sanctification, aren't we? If you have been called by God, if you have the Spirit living within you, there are going to be things which your spiritual maturity at this point finds different and holds differently to than maybe in 10, 20, 30, 60 years. Praise God that He doesn't leave us static. That's awesome, right? So who are we to judge one another for the point at which your sanctification is? Who are we to judge someone? The, uh, what was, what, how did he put it there? To your own master you stand or fall. So who are we to judge you? I'm not your master. Who am I to judge you? Instead, as the chapter closes out in verse 22 and 23 of Romans 14, the faith which you have have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself on what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. So yes, the simple answer is that not partaking in food or drink or keeping some regulated festival or new moon or Sabbath is indeed the mark of a weakness of faith. Nevertheless, that is not the mark of success or failure, spiritually speaking, because it is merely a mark of where our conscience lies at the time, at the moment. And the real mark of growth, the real test of sincerity, is whether it is done or not done for Christ our Lord. And that helps us to make our way into the last section of our text. So turn back over to Colossians chapter 2. We'll pick up there in verse 20. Colossians 2 and verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. 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 Now, the previous verses were mainly focused on the spiritual intimidation that we, are, that we do to each other. Uh, Paul uses the no one phrase twice there, right? We saw that. To indicate the outward projection of these legalistic tendencies toward one another. Yet in verses 16 through 19, we also see that we tend to do that to ourselves, right? We see that we intimidate ourselves and we put limits upon ourselves that maybe shouldn't be there. But here in verses 20 through 23, we get the full brunt of what Paul has to say about religious asceticism. He says, if you, if you, his readers, that means me and you, right? But he gets more specific. If you who, if you, those of you who have died with Christ, if you have died with Christ. Now that's a phrase we're familiar with, right, from Paul. Because Paul says that we've been crucified with Christ at least seven times. And he also says that we have died with him several times. 
including in Romans 6, where he makes it clear that when we have died with Christ, we no longer live for ourselves, but for God. And he even says in Romans 6, 14, that, quote, sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. It's clear that Paul is not advocating sinning now that we live in grace. Why? Because he gives that a swift punch in the throat by saying, may it never be, verse 15, right? He also says that at the top of the chapter too, right? Yeah. Do we go on sinning so that grace may increase? May it never be. But he is giving the hope of the gospel to his readers, a gospel which frees from the transgressions which increased in the law, as he put it in Romans 5.20. It is this freedom from the law, which, remember, is even outside of what we end up kind of squishing in and making our own regulations, our own rules over. It is this freedom from the law brought about by grace, bought by Christ, and obtained through union with Him, you know, our bridegroom, that makes what Paul is saying in Colossians 2 so magnificent. The hope of the gospel is about eternal life and cleansing of sin and union with Christ and the beauty of truth and sanctification. And it is also about the joy of freedom. As we saw in Galatians 5, right? It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. A preacher I like to listen to and read said something along the lines of, uh, our lusts in life are like a hornet's nest. You know, think about a hornet's nest. And then the law is like a stick that comes along and just starts beating it like crazy and getting those hornets all riled up, right? That's what the law does. Paul says that very clearly, right? I would not know what coveting was if the law had not said, <laughs> if the law had not described it to me. It's not the law that causes the hornets to attack after the stick is used, though, right? But it rustles them up nevertheless. After all, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. That's how Paul put it in Romans 5.20. But how does that verse end? But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So, going back to Colossians 2.20, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world... Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So the reason I bring up the lust hornet's nest and the law is a stick to drive the lust hornets mad is because that is the point. That is the whole point. The law is holy, Romans 7.12. The law is righteous and good, also Romans 7.12. The law is spiritual, Romans 7.14. So the law could not be sin itself, right? That's Romans 7.7. 7. The confines of morality, which the law explicitly states, are not driving us to sin. Our flesh does that. Romans seven fourteen through 25. In other words, the law defines what sin is, but our flesh transgresses it. Meaning we do not have to go searching for a way to sin as if there are boundaries which could keep us safely back from the precipice of sin. We don't have to keep, go searching for it. We find it all quite easily. To stay away from immorality would mean we would have to go out of the world as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.10, right? So to think we can safely hem ourselves in with boundaries of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch is, the, is an act of purest optimism with no actual link to reality. Where we go, we take sin with us because it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. That's Matthew 15, 11, 18, and 19. 
The problem is a matter of the flesh. And fleshly solutions won't beat it. The problem is spiritual, but I am a flesh. Romans 7, 14. So how do I beat this bondage to sin? Well, we beat it through the same acknowledgement which Paul makes after pondering this conundrum in Romans 7. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, everybody now, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know that verse really well, don't we? And we should. We should know it better. And this is the point which Paul is making in Colossians 2 as well. These rules you make, these physical boundaries you set up for yourself by abstaining from certain foods, by saying no to certain drinks, by celebrating heartily a festival or new moon, or by observing every Sabbath perfectly, these ways in which you point the finger at the freedoms which others in Christ enjoy, these rituals which you think so lofty and so spiritual, these ways in which you deny the body, all of these things have the appearance of wisdom, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Why? Because you bring the sin with you. Which is why you need Christ Jesus. Anytime we begin to focus upon our own self-abasement and an appearance of religious fervor and spirituality, we need to understand that our focus would be better aimed at Christ so that we may see our salvation and be sanctified by looking upon Him and through Him, right? After all, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. So that we may be sanctified For in him and in him alone is now no condemnation. And guess what we get? We get a wonderful verse like Titus 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Praise God for Jesus, right? Living in us sanctifying us, purifying us so that we can be pure so that all things will be pure. I'm going to take just a couple more minutes here because I wanted to mention one more thing before we get into discussion. One other thing that I think religious asceticism does is it takes away our joy. That's not explicitly stated in our text, but I think it's there nonetheless and you can find it anywhere else in the Bible too. It takes away our joy. Religious asceticism takes away our joy by drawing boundaries where none should exist. They have to be well back from the actual precipice of sin for them to actually be perceived as helpful, right? But there's no way to do this without continuing to march them back further and further and further if that's where we place our confidence, right? To the point where you end up eating just a nutrition brick instead of something good. But that nutrition brick or whatever you end up putting out there as the thing that you're going to do in order to restrain your fleshly, um, fleshly uh, desires. Anything can be made into an idol, can't it? Anything can be used by the human heart to sin so that we can't ever rest. And we're just making it worse on ourselves by putting up those boundaries and then always having to walk them back in order to keep them fresh. And to keep an an idea or some sort of um, um, veneer of piety. And then what do we do? We miss the joy of the rest which Christ promised. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
and take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Man, and the yoke is easy and the burden is light. And then we keep on loading stuff on top of it, huh? So instead of spending all your time repairing the fences of self-made religion, because you do have to repair them all the time or walk them back, self-made religion and self-abasement, enjoy a sunset once in a while. Have an extra slice of Lupe's chocolate cake. Maybe take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Celebrate Pentecost in addition to Christmas. I don't know. (laughs) Just throw something out there. Refrain from celebrating some other festival. And do it all with Christ so central to your acting or not acting that your conscience is full of joy and rest as well as your senses. After all, we're a whole body and soul, right? And so it's not just about souls, the soul's health. It's also about the body's health as well. And what's awesome too is that our soul can give joy to, and glory to God, and so can our body. And this religious asceticism is of no value against fleshly indulgence. All right, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll break up for discussion groups. Dear Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful passage of Scripture and the freedom and rest and peace and joy that we receive through the knowledge of it the knowledge, Lord, that Christ Jesus should be our full focus, that our consciences should be, will be kept clear and pure by you, for you are able to make us stand. Lord, we thank you so much for, um, for just the, the joy and the knowledge of that. And we ask that you would free us both of our legalism and our license. Lord, make us instead focused upon Christ. Sanctify us, make us mature in you, and we praise you for Jesus, in his name, amen.